Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. This is the 1930s science fiction reading series, and it is episode four in the series. So if you're coming to this because you're a big fan of the thing and just want to know more about who goes there, and we expect a lot of you will be, you should check out the whole series, especially the Rule 18 episode about the uh, Clifford Smack classic story about football, a football game on Mars, uh, which is our last ep- episode in this series, because that was a story published by John W. Campbell, and we had a John W. Campbell expert on that show, and he gave some insight into that. However, we're going to talk about this story, and I called on this special panel that I've been kind of envisioning in my head for over a year of people who write in the blended territory of science fiction and horror and have been lifelong fans, especially I think we're all huge fans of The Thing, uh, the movie from the 1982 John Carpenter masterpiece, and I'm sure we'll end up talking a lot about it. But we're going to talk about the story that it was based on, Who Goes There, by John W. Campbell. But let me introduce my guests first, and we want to get into their work. I'm going to start with the professor, Mary San Giovanni, who uh, has an alien novel coming out. And I'm sure we'll get to that, but she's the author of the Hollower Trilogy, lots of stuff, uh, host of several podcasts. Mary, tell the folks who you are and what you do. Well, I'm Mary San Giovanni as Dave said, and I write cosmic horror, primarily uh, supernatural horror. And the thing is absolutely one of my favorite movies of all time, but uh, we'll we'll get to that. Um, I do write a little bit of science fiction-y horror, I think because cosmic horror tends to use certain science fiction elements. And uh, I recently completed an alien novel for Titan. Um, It's called Alien Enemy of My Enemy, and it's coming out in February. I'm very excited. And uh, I guess that's that's about it. I'm I'm really excited about this. I love I love the thing. So, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm uh, all in. Your alien novel is one of my most anticipated reads of the rest of the year. So I'm super stoked on that. Uh, everybody here has written alien shit, actually. So <laughs> let's be clear, <laughs> we like alien. Um, so um, Brian Keene is the horror grandmaster and i was very excited to see him get that uh honor in portland um but he's also crossed over with science fiction with his amazing lost level novels which are um really applicable because they're very pulp era style um crossover science fiction horror uh back when there was everything blended together anyways uh brian tell the folks who you are and what you do I, I think you just did. Um, but, but yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I'm Brian Keene. I've written uh, well over 60 books at this point. Uh, horror, fantasy, science fiction, crime, uh, a couple nonfiction books. Um, currently uh, working on the fourth book in the Lost Level series, David. So thank you for giving an opportunity to plug that. Beneath the Lost Level, it should be out next year. And uh, finishing up uh, an adaptation of uh, 
Stephen King and Richard Chismar's Gwendy's Button Box, a graphic novel adaptation that kind of goes beyond the original book and expands on the Castle Rock mythos a little bit. So that's been a real treat. Oh, wow. I did not know about that. That is no? super yeah. cool. How did I miss that? Uh, well, I, I, I haven't been talking about it much. Um, it's, I won't lie. It's, it's the most nerve wracking thing I've ever done. Um, I was actually talking with my, my dear friend, Rio yours about this. Uh, Cause Rio has also adapted uh, some King stuff for graphic novel. He did and talk it, about that on this show. So people <laughs> should go back and listen to that episode. Well, there you go. But yeah, it's, you know, you want, uh, you, you want to honor the work and you want to be respectful of the work but comics are a very visual medium um and gwendy's button box is it's not a visual novella there are some great moments in it that are lend themselves very well to comics but there's a lot of conversation and, and conversation is hard to do in comic book form um so it was suggested to me that you know I could expand. It takes place in Castle Rock in the 70s. What else was happening in Castle Rock in the 70s? Well, Cujo, the Dead Zone, all kinds of stuff. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm getting a chance to, to not only adapt the novella, but play with the town. And it's, uh, it's one of the biggest honors of my career, but it's also the most nerve wracking. Tim, you, you can empathize with this. I'm a, Tim, Tim and Mary will both tell you, I'm a fast writer. There are days with this graphic novel where I might get half a page done. And, and that took me all day because I second guess every mm. word, every every artist instruction. But yeah, that's what that's what I got going on. That's awesome. Uh, Tim Levin is uh, familiar to our listeners because he's recently been on, which is uh, to promote The Last Storm, which is a fantastic cli-fi uh sci-fi horror novel it's one of my top reads of the year um uh along with maurice broadus is a sweep of stars uh two of my favorite reads of the year and so i'm really stoked to have tim back tim is also the author of the silence which was my top read of 2015 so he's made that list before uh tim tell the folks who you are what you do Thank you, Dave. Yeah, like Brian said, I think he just did. But yeah, I, so I'm I'm Tim Levin. Uh, I've written lo uh, yeah lots of novels, not quite as many as Keen. I've written forty seven novels to date. I think you'll catch up. Yeah, I'm getting there. You know, some of the, some of those are in collaboration with uh, my good friend Chris Golden. I think he and I have written like eight novels. Together. You missed the chance to catch up when he was doing the horror show. That's when you could have caught up. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 47 novels, but quite a few novellas and collections and other stuff. Uh, I've actually, Brian, I'm just dipping my toe into comics now. Chris and I, um, oh, can we announce this? Uh, yeah, so I'm writing yeah, a it's comic. Been announced. As a, I'm writing a comic with Chris Golden at the moment, which is uh, I'm really enjoying. Um, uh, yeah, so I've written lots of horror and sort of sci-fi fantasy blended stuff, I guess, and a couple of, couple of straight thrillers. Um, one non-fiction book, which was about me trying to get fit in my 40s, uh, which was good fun to do. Um, I'm sort of branching out a little bit lately. I'm doing a computer game, writing a computer game at the moment, which is good, really good fun. Um, it's, like a, it's like a cross between a novel and a screenplay. It's so much fun to do. It's a collaborative thing, but then, you know, you got like us narrative guys and you got the concept guys and 
that's really I'm really enjoying that and I'm also doing some audio stuff for Audible which um yeah it's all good it's all yeah. good I'm still writing novels but trying to spread my wings a bit you know to make a living and it's all storytelling I just love telling stories and whatever medium you can do it in is fine by me really and that's uh since this is one of the greatest uh science fiction and one of the most important science fiction stories of this decade that we're <laughs> focusing on in the 1930s I could not not do an episode about who goes there and um its importance now a little bit later this is an episode that it's fine to listen to it as an audio the audio is going to sound better but i am going to have a few visual aids because i think it's really important to look at the issue that it was in um, if anybody has not read it you can pause it and go read it it's available on the internet archive because um all the old pulp magazines are up there they're not for sale anymore so you don't have to worry about pirating that kind of thing um, I just that I think there's something to reading it in its original format when you can see the ads, you can see like the ridiculous things that were going on as far as like around it and the illustrations. The illustrations um, are great. And the, the ads, like you say, the ads are fascinating as well. But the, yeah, uh, great yeah. illustrations there. Right. Um, yeah. And we'll get into we'll we'll break those down a little bit. And then um, but first I'm gonna get into the history. John W. Campbell, and everybody can jump in whenever you feel like you want to comment. Um, I should also note that everyone on this panel is a return guest. Um, and uh, John, uh, Brian and Tim have been on for individual interviews. Mary, I got to do that eventually with you. Um, Mary was on one of my all-time favorite episodes, which is the two-part uh, top 10 horror short stories episode with Laird Barron. And yes. Judge Mark Rothenberg. Um, and uh, that's a really great episode. So people should go listen to that if they haven't um, listened to those episodes. So the history of John W. Campbell. And uh, I, I, from before pre-roll, uh, Mary is on to this one too. One of the most important things in John W. Campbell's childhood, which kind of informed this story, and it's something I can relate to because my mother was a twin and uh, she grew up in an era where, you know, my aunt took her driver's test for her and, <laughs> you know, uh, um, they used to break up with each other's boyfriends so they wouldn't have to do it. These kinds of things. Twins, I think a lot in the past, twins uh, looked a lot more alike than they do these days. Twins try to separate themselves, but in the past. Keenan mm -hmm. uh, and I twins... actually write each other's books. You didn't know that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right. So John W. Campbell's mom was a twin, but his aunt's personality was very different from his mother. His mother was very loving. His aunt was very cold and distant. And he he had the childhood experience of having to like run home to mom and think he was hugging his warm, loving mother and get this cold, distant other person. And yeah. it's really oh, interesting to think about like what that says about the, the whole identity thing that's going on not just in who goes there but in, in several of Campbell's stories but specifically who goes there it's it's very interesting absolutely it, yeah and yeah I I had read that his mom and aunt would sometimes switch off to confuse him when he was an infant and a toddler and I can't imagine what kind of an impact that would have on your sense of safety and security you know as a child that your yeah. mom isn't always your mom mom's not your mom mm. that yeah. is fucking terrifying yeah <laughs> <You know that. laughs> 
It is very terrifying. Uh, although mom did some good stuff for him. She was the one that introduced him to science fiction. She brought him Edgar Rice Burroughs books um, and got him into it. I don't think she had any inkling what she was doing specifically to, to this kid. Um, unlike a lot of the writers from the era, it's a common thing with the writers from the era that you read the same stories over and over again, whether it's C.L. Moore, whether it's uh, Lee Brackett, uh, Walter Tevis, Phil, Philip K. Dick, they, they were all like sickly kids who ended up sitting at home reading, and that's why they ended up being readers. That wasn't necessarily true of John W. Campbell, but he was a huge reader. That was one thing. He was very interested in physics, and it's interesting that he did get accepted to MIT to study physics, which is a pretty big deal. However, he did wash out. <laughs> he didn't quite make it at MIT. And if, who knows, we wouldn't necessarily have had John W. Campbell, the editor of Astounding Magazine, if he hadn't washed out in 1931 at MIT. But it's also interesting to note that during this era at MIT is when he started writing science fiction. So he was already writing science fiction while he was studying physics. He also um, got help from Norbert Weiner, who is a famous physicist at MIT, to write one of his early space opera stories called Islands of Space. And that was his first sail to amazing stories. And a lot of people believe that this influence of having real science is one of the things, or real science for the day, is one of the things that got Campbell this uh, initial sail. But once he started making sales, he was off. And he, and he was making sales all over the place and he was very popular and how you know that he was very popular in that that day and era is and this is a very important thing to do if you start going through these archives and looking at these old magazines it's very important that you always go and read the writer the letter section at the end because that was the twitter of the 1930s <laughs> and if you want to know um what people were thinking about the stories it's the letters and the letters are how we know uh, this is a lot of the first time that these writers made appearances in these letter sections, Catherine Moore, Henry Kuttner, Robert Block, um, uh, who else? Philip K. Dick, uh, Walter Tevis, Walter Tevis, the author of Queen's Gambit. The first time we ever saw his name in print was in uh, startling stories. And they, a lot of times would just say, I like this story. I didn't like this story, but it's interesting. It's also how we got Isaac Asimov, which is the whole point of the Rule 18 episode that we did. And everyone should go back and listen to that because it was him criticizing Clifford Samak and his football story that um, got the two of them to start communicating. Because a lot of times if somebody complained about a story, the writer would write to that person and say, hey, um, what didn't you like about the story? Like, you know, they and that's how they became friends all over the place. That wouldn't work nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, reply to an Amazon review. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> well, and it is interesting how different the attitude is when it's instantaneous and it's, right. you know. Yeah. Yeah. And people could you know, think you, about you, it. Dave, you, you're saying that was a Twitter of the 30s that, you know, writing letters to magazines, reviewing stories from the last issue. Brian and I and Mary, probably when we started in the small press in the 90s or the early 2000s, that was the, the first page I turned to is the, the letters page to see if anyone liked my story from the last issue, you know? <laughs> that was before the instant logging on and and uh, even the old, uh, you know, Horonet message boards and shit like that. It was and, letters and, and magazines. 
And even before the three of us started getting published, I have fond memories of, you know, the horror show magazine and afraid and some of the others, the, the letters columns in there. I remember uh, Charles L. Grant and uh, Bill Nolan and a couple others uh, yeah. deriding Splatterpunk when it first started. Um, and yeah. then the Splatterpunk punks defending themselves. And over the space of like six months, Nolan and Grant and everybody else came around. They're like, okay, yeah, this is a, a valid form of hard fiction. <laughs> it was amazing. It wasn't instantaneous like social media. Yeah, you, you had to wait till the next issue to see how it would unfold. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then in, in the case of Philip K. Dick, that's how you get crazy stalkers like me that go and find the houses that they lived in because I get the addresses. <laughs> and, like, um, and I had the experience of being able to tell a lady that Philip K. Dick lived in her house that she lived in since the 60s because we found a letter from uh, Amazing Stories from 1943, right? Wow. And um, so all these addresses are out there. So like a lot of these famous authors, like, for example, if we've got a listener in Milwaukee, I guarantee you can find a Robert Block letter with his address in it from Weird Tales, and you can go find where Robert Block lived as a child. I'm, I'm putting that out there to anyone in Milwaukee who's listening. Send me pictures. Um, so, because <laughs> um, they're, they're all there, and the letters are very fascinating. Some of them are real basic, but you get you know, those letters, that's how Robert Block got started because going through the depression, Robert Block missed a couple issues of Weird Tales and he was so, he was beside himself that he might've missed a Lovecraft story. And his first letter was writing to the magazine saying, hey, did I miss any? And Lovecraft actually sent him the stories that he missed. Wow. Uh, and that's, uh, uh, I just read Robert Block's biography, so autobiography, so it's in my head, but the letters are so important. So one thing that's going on here is that um, Astounding Magazine in the mid-30s was under the editorship of F. Orlin Tremaine. Now, it, besides having a hilarious name, he is actually the one who bought Who Goes There. Who Goes There was bought, even though it was published in the era where um, Campbell was editing the magazine himself, the story was originally purchased before he took over as editor. It's one of the things that got him the job as a matter of fact, was, uh, I, I believe, according to Alex, Alec Neville-Lee's timeline, it's one of the things that got him the job. And Tremaine uh, also published At the Mountains of Madness, and so he published lots of good stuff during his era, and he published Twilight, which was, Twilight was the first Don A. Stewart story, and Campbell wrote a lot of his darker stories under the name Don A. Stewart, and at the time, the idea was, is that if you wrote, he wrote originally a lot of pulpy sci-fi, like space opera stuff. And then the idea was, well, you could be confusing your readers if you go and do something dark. Plus, you can only sell so many in a year. So if you change your name, mm -hmm. and a lot of times these writers weren't telling the editors that they had these other names. Although uh, Don A. Stewart was not a very well-kept secret at the time. Everyone knew it was Campbell. Um, a lot of the readers, like if you look at the letters, they knew uh, Donnie Stewart was Campbell. And he would also, he also had names that he wrote nonfiction articles under um, in the magazine. And a lot of times these magazines, if they were short money, they would just fill in themselves. 
I, I, there are fanzines of Don Wolheim's that are like almost entirely written by him under like six days, <laughs> you know, <laughs> during this era. Um, and I got this great quote from Campbell that he said to uh, Isaac Asimov, who used to come visit him at his offices all the time to, buy, um, to try and, you know, learn at the, the foot of the master. And he'd said, I'm an editor. When I was a writer, I could only write one story at a time. There are 50 writers out there writing stories that have all talked with me. And so what he's saying is he was like farming out his ideas. And he saw it as like he had too many ideas that he could contain in one brain. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but so he started, the other thing too is when I say that Asimov was hanging out of the offices, Fred Paul was hanging out of the offices. All these writers... They would come by because they thought it gave them a greater chance of getting in the magazine if they made friends. And the other thing is Campbell would drop breadcrumbs of ideas. He would just say, what if this? What if that? And for example, networking, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and for example, that's why Isaac Asimov would say all the time, well, Campbell actually came up with the As Asimov's laws of robotics. Also, it was Campbell who said, what if people saw stars for the first time? Would, don't you think they'd go insane? Go write that story, Asimov. <laughs> and that became Nightfall, which is one of the most classic science fiction stories yeah. of all time. So yeah. now, who goes there? Let's talk about... Um, now, one last thing before we get into the story. He sold one shape-shifting alien story before this to Thrilling Wonder Stories, and Campbell called it Imitation, but uh, Thrilling Wonder Stories changed it to Brain Stealers from Mars. That's a much better title. <laughs> Brain Stealers from Mars. All right. Uh, let's look at what the magazine looked like. Uh, this was the cover. Um, for those of you on YouTube, like I said, on YouTube, you're going to get a little bit more here. This was the cover. As you can see, Don A. Stewart is in the top corner. Um, mm -hmm. And the, the title story was Hell Ship by Arthur J. Banks, which was a hard sci-fi story about um, a like lost ship. Um, I did kind of give a chance to read it. It wasn't great. So I kind of I kind of tapped out on that one. Mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of a cool cover. Um, but it's just interesting that this classic was not the cover story, right? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Let's look at the table of contents for this issue. So we got Hellship. Um, who goes there was the second no novelette of the issue. It was 60 pages in. Um, there's not much going on in this table of contents. It's not the best issue. This was August of 1938. And if you want context for how long ago this was, that um, July 1938 was the last um, Gettysburg reunion of living vets. Um, wow. <laughs> um, literally the month before that. That's the coolest example I could find of, of you know, how long ago this was. And um, 
It was one issue after the Rule 18 um, with Clifford Samack. Um, and that had also a classic L. Ron Hubbard story in that issue. The only other author of serious note in here is there's The Disinherited by Henry Kuttner. Uh, of course, Henry Kuttner uh, married to C.L. Moore, Catherine uh, Lucille Moore, who was the subject of the first episode of the series. And the Kuttner story was called The Disinherited. That's the artwork. And it's about um, a benevolent alien who watches over the human race to try and make sure it survives. Um, pretty forward thinking for 1938, that Henry Kuttner. Um, Henry Kuttner, if you don't know, grew up in Beverly Hills in LA. His uncle was a literary agent, so he had an in to get these stories published very quickly, but he had the talent. And this is um, the only other story of this issue that I managed to finish <laughs> through. Um, and I recommend it. It's good. Um, it's not the best Henry Kuttner I've read. It's definitely early. And I think that when he and his wife, C.L. Moore, were writing together, um, they were really on fire. So I recommend I, I will go to my grave. And I know that this episode is not about Henry Kuttner, but I'm a big Henry Kuttner fan. Say um, <laughs> but I, I will go to my grave believing that that story was the influence on Stan Lee and Jack Kirby for The Watcher in the Fantastic Four. And of course, now the, the entire Marvel Universe. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. Um, so some of the funny ads, this is my favorite of this issue. There she was waiting at church. <laughs> um, this is a Listerine ad about how she could. <laughs> How's your breath? Oh, her breath was so bad she couldn't go into church. She couldn't use Listerine. Wow. <laughs> oh, dear. Now, keep in mind, Campbell had no control over these ads. <laughs> Uh, they were sold by the company, and a lot of these ads were in all the magazines, in the detective magazines, the Western ones. Um, so, but that was my favorite of this one. Um, the Mountains of Madness one has uh, an ad for start your own potato chip business, which I think is great. And uh, I made a joke online about how um, it's well known that John F. Ruffle was a huge Lovecraft fan, and no one laughed at that joke, and I don't understand <laughs> <laughs> um how no one thought that was funny but uh let's look at the um now this is the uh cover for the edition i read uh the modern the most recent modern edition and we'll talk about that later because it has an introduction by um william f nolan and it has his screen treatment that he wrote in the 70s uh that i wish i i wish i liked his screen treatment, but uh, we'll get there because uh, I liked Bill <laughs> treatment. Wow. Okay, here's the cover art for who goes there. Who is that? Your closest friend or a monstrous imitation? Breed of an alien, a deadly world. Who goes there? And there, it got two pages of art. And this is the one that will look familiar to fans of the movie, I think. Um, and mm -hmm. it's them putting out the fires, you know, they use fire to, uh, fight the thing, just like the, um, movie. And I think the artwork is really cool. Now I want to hear what the panel thinks about, um, was this your first time seeing the magazine? 
um, and you looked at it, and what did you think of it, starting with Mary? It's the it's the first time I've seen the magazine. I had read the novella uh, years ago, and then I reread it, you know, for for doing this panel. And um, the art, <laughs> I like the art. I, I can see the meat of the novelette or novella. I'm not exactly sure how long it is. So I, if, if I use those terms interchangeably, I apologize. Um, the meat of the story there is definitely in John Carpenter's adaptation. Uh, there are some changes, including who is assimilated by the thing and, and how it ends. Because I think that probably during that time period, there was a yay America, you know, yay human race kind of approach to storytelling that, you know, I think colored how the events of the story unfold. But I, I don't know, I, I liked seeing the artwork because of all of the, particularly in, in I, the first time I'd ever heard of the thing, when I was a little kid, my dad got me Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials, which is almost like a field guide to all of the monsters and science fiction from like, I, I think like the 20s right on up to the 70s. And um, oh, I want that on my shelf. <laughs> oh, it was, it was so cool. And there was another one that came after that that was uh, more horror based. But some of these monsters, I mean, they just capture the imagination they were just terrifying and the thing was one of them now the the monster illustration on the cover of frozen hell looks more like how i picture it based on the way it's described in the novella than the barlow's guide does but in my mind that is it gives me like a happy chill every time i see that illustration if you go and you look up on google what the thing's original form is or what they thought its original form was that Barlow's Guide picture comes up almost every time. Now, before I get to Tim and Brian and their, their thoughts looking at the magazine, um, I do want to comment on Frozen Hell. Um, if it wasn't for Alec Neville Lee, who's the author of this amazing book, Astounding, we would not have ever known that Campbell, because he found a manuscript in, in Campbell's papers at Harvard that was lost. And Campbell had originally tried to write this as a novel, a longer piece, realized he wasn't going to be able to sell it as a longer piece and shortened it into the version that we have, which is one of the reasons why it kind of starts in media res, right? Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. um, where it starts, but we would, it's just as an archivist who digs around archives at libraries, that's like, you know, Alec is like Indiana Jones to me. And the fact that he found it, I was like super stoked. <laughs> I was like jealous <laughs> You know, I, I, I've found a page of an unwritten outline by Philip K. Dick. And that's the most I've gotten so far. <laughs> but like, I was so impressed that he found this. And the fact that we have this longer version is, is amazing. I'm a traditionalist and I want to look at the history of it and how mm -hmm. it impacted the genre as it was. That's mm -hmm. why we're not covering Frozen Hell. Maybe we will someday. But that's why we didn't. So I wanted to say that. Uh, Tim, what was your was this your first experience seeing how it was originally published? Yeah, first time I'd seen um, the magazine. And what, what struck me, um, you know, in, like you say, it was, it wasn't even the cover story, the, this classic story that became the thing, wasn't even the cover story back then. But then nobody ever writes something think, and publishes it and thinks this is a cl future classic because you just don't know. And my thought was, I really hope he got paid well for it. 
<laughs> you know, back in the 30s, hopefully, is that that's the sort of time, just coming towards the end of the period where you can make a living writing short stories, I think, in the 30s, mm-hmm. late 30s. But, you know, he wrote, um, yeah, it, to answer your question, the first time I'd seen the magazine was when, when you sent us the link to it, yeah. And, um, yeah, it just struck me that most people who read it back then just thought, oh, it's another, that's quite a good story. I like that. And then now it's many horror fans' favourite movie. And um, I was quite struck by, like Mary, I, I read it years ago. I don't know how many years ago I read the novella, like 20, 25 years ago, and read it again, just finished it this morning, actually, for this. And struck me how it felt so similar to the movie we know and love. Mm-hmm. even. Even the the dating of it, you know, it was written in thirty eight, and there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff that ages it. A lot of the science ages yeah. it, and the, and the language the dialogue but, a little bit. Yeah, the but it sort of it also sort of felt fairly modern to me, and I think that's because in my head, Macready was Curse. what I, I loved about the, the <laughs> Macready descriptions. How many times Campbell used the term bronzed giant? Really. You know, he's been in fucking Antarctica for a year with these bronzed, these suntans. <laughs> if, if, if you did a search of that manuscript for the word bronzed, he probably mm-hmm. really bronzed like a dozen times. But but in my head, he was Kurt Russell and, um, mm-hmm. you know, or, or Gary was the, I can't remember the name of the actor, the tall dude. But I, mm. I think reading it, I'm, you can't, I can't read that novella without just playing the movie in my mind again, really. Well, and technically, I think it was probably written in 35 or 36. Right. right. Um, yeah. Because Tremaine bought it in 36. And um, I, we, I can't answer that Astounding was the only of the pulp science fiction magazines that paid on acceptance, uh, which right. was a big deal because um, Amazing and Weird Tales paid when your story ran. Mm-hmm. And um, that presented a lot of problems because sometimes they'd hold on to stories for a very long time and we all know that hugo gernsback is he may have an award named after him but um he was not going to have a paypal award named after him because he did not pay on time uh you know that sounds familiar now mate to be honest (laughs) yeah yeah you see him four writers nodding yes um but uh but yes, uh, um, Astounding was the one and only of the pulps that paid on acceptance. And that was, uh, Tremaine was the one who did that. And um, I don't, I mean, at that point, uh, Campbell would have had control over what he got paid for the story because he was the editor. So uh, he was kind of cooking the books for himself there, I'm sure. But he did have to answer to Smith and Street, so he couldn't have like paid himself a million dollars, you know. I noticed uh, the price on the cover was twenty cents. Yeah. So be interesting to know what these guys were getting paid. I mean, mm. was it three cents a word? Which is, you know, uh, people. Yeah, yeah, great nowadays. Yeah, but, I know Cutner's. Yeah. I know not. Um, CL Moore's first um, weird tale sale of Chamblo was a hundred dollars. And that was a big deal. And that's why she hid her name, not because of her gender, but because she didn't want to lose her job at the bank because she was moonlighting as a writer. So, <laughs> um, and I, I know, I have in my notes for, I'm rec- recording at the Mountains of Madness tomorrow with Cody Goodfellow um, and uh, um, Fred Ludnow, who's a, a Lovecraftian scientist guy. And uh, I do have in my notes how much Lovecraft was paid for that, but I don't remember off the top of my head, but he was paid pretty lucratively for At the Mountains of Madness, but that ran in three issues. 
So, right. so the spread over three. You um, know, funny thing, we saw letters, Brian and I, um, that Lovecraft had written to friends in, in this collection of papers in Rhode Island. And in one of them, he is complaining about how publishers just don't pay writers what they're worth. Uh, and it made us laugh and laugh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there, there's a letter where he, he's saying he hopes that, you know, one day they can earn more than five cents per word, five <laughs> cents per word, which is still considered pro rates today. Mm -hmm. Right. And exposure, though, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> right. Um, Brian, your was this your first time looking at the magazine? I probably not. I think you know, you've dug through no. pulps before. Um, yeah. I've never owned a copy of it, uh, but. In Baltimore, uh, Steve Geppi, the, the comic book uh, giant, uh, he used to have a, a museum, Geppi's Entertainment Museum, uh, which was primarily comic books, but they also had old pulps and lunch boxes and all kinds of ephemera. And uh, he had two copies of this in a showcase. So you could you could see the cover and then they the other copy was opened to the story with that illustration. So <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I viewed it many times through glass. Um, as far as discovering the novella, like Mary, for me, it was it was Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials. Um, when I was a teenager, I joined the sci-fi book club. You know, you got like 10 books for a dollar or whatever it was, and all nice hardcovers. And uh, after about five books, I didn't know what else to get. So I just checked stuff at random. One of them was Barlow's Guide. And uh, I used that as as my science fiction dictionary. I'd go through it. I'd get to a cool looking monster mm -hmm. and I'd track the book down. And uh, it was, it was the illustration of the thing. I was like, Oh, I, I got to find this who goes there. And I, I found a copy of the collection at the flea market. It was the, the old, you know, the old paperback who goes there and others, other stories, I think is the title um, fell in love with it, you know, and not long after when Carpenter's adaptation came out, I hadn't seen the trailer. I didn't know anything about the movie. I just knew it was John Carpenter. Uh, went to see it opening weekend. I was the only one in the theater because everybody else was watching E.T., which was also out <laughs> that year. Um, and, you know, it, within the first 10 minutes, I'm like, holy shit, this is, uh, this is who goes there. Wow. You know? Yeah. Oh, you didn't know when you went to see it? Didn't know. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Right. Yeah. yeah. That is really interesting. Well, we'll get back to the movie in a little bit, but um, no one was more surprised of how this story hit people than John W. Campbell, who kind of saw this as like, I need filler for my magazine where I don't have, you know, to keep under budget and stuff like that. So actually, I don't think he paid himself a lot because I do, now that I think about it, I do think he was trying to save money by having himself, you know, himself in it. And um he was really cool about that in the early days about paying writers and making sure that they got paid first because he believed like some of his stable of writers include Robert Heinlein, L. Ron Hubbard. Um, and Asimov was not considered important in the early days. Um, you know, he was just this kind of nerdy kid who worked at his dad's candy shop that hung around. And, um, and that's one of the things you should know about Asimov is that he read all the pulp magazines at his, from his dad's rack where he sold them and he couldn't like pull the bindings apart far enough that they couldn't be sold. And then which is kind of a neat story for Asimov. And it was him figuring out that 
Campbell was in New York that he, you know, took the train across town to go there. But, uh, you know, this story gets published and um, it's an immediate hit. And one of the coolest stories that I read in Astounding, um, which is really cool, is that one of the most important science fiction writers of the 1940s, of course, is A.E. Von Vogt. And uh, Vogt, allegedly, this was the story that was like the light bulb moment for him. And supposedly he read it all standing at the newsstand. Um, mm that you know he was flipping through the issue reading little bits of stories and then got hooked and according to legend he read all of who goes there standing at the newsstand <laughs> uh, now that could be apocryphal but i think it's a cool story um and of course he would go on to write um the worlds of null a the players in null a and all that which were um heavily ripped off by everyone including philip k dick for solar lottery his first novel so avon vote who goes there? Very important. Um, but we know this story went on to become voted by the science fiction writers of America as the most one of the most influential, important, and memorable science fiction stories. It's in the Hall of Fame for many reasons. So um, now onto the actual story. Yeah, it's all there. Um, when Lancaster, um, Bill Lancaster, who wrote the screenplay, of course, who died with only two major credits, um, Bad News Bears and this. Uh, two classics, two very different classics. Um, they stuck to the story, just like Brian said. I mean, it's, um, and going back and rereading, you know, it is kind of, if you've seen the movie a bazillion times, like I'm sure all of us have, going back and rereading the story, it's like, hey, Norris, Blair, McCready, they're all there. Um, and then you start to see the characters in your head as you're reading it based on, and that's like an amazing thing that Carpenter did for all of us is to give us that um and the frozen hell version does not start with the same in media res part of the story where we, they've already uncovered the ice they've already done all that um and that's partially i think just because i think he was just like hey i can start it here what do you guys think about the starting part of the story does anybody have any comments on that because i think that's really a smart thing actually starting in the middle a little bit yeah i haven't i've never read brian your mic is off whoops sorry sorry i haven't i haven't read the frozen hell version um i haven't i just haven't gotten around to it yet uh but as a writer looking back reading that as a teenager i learned a lot from the the opening of the novella you know, yeah. it's like, like, wow, you can, you can do it here in the middle of the action. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of prose back then that did that. Comic books did it, but prose fiction didn't. Um, you know, so I never had a problem with that. Yeah. And by the way, that was advice that Campbell gave Asimov was you need to start later. You need to start in the middle. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was a, a light bulb moment for short stories was like, I don't need to explain all this shit at the beginning. Just go, <laughs> you know. Um, you sort of does start in the middle, but then um, spends a couple of pages telling you about where it came from anyway. You know, he starts with the thing on the table dripping and mm -hmm. uh, shit's gone down, the dogs have gone mad. And then, but then says, oh yeah, but remember where we found this. And then for me, one of the scariest bits of the novella is at the beginning is when they're talking about finding the ship and digging up the alien. And then when they try and excavate the ship, they blow it up and the magnesium catches and it explodes and it 
illuminates the ice from underneath and they see several other shapes frozen mm -hmm. in the ice. And that is, you know, that's pretty Lovecraftian almost. It's really chilling. And then they're, they're burnt and blown up. But you think there wasn't just one of these things. There were a few of them that had got out. That was pretty scary for me. Yeah, yeah. For, for me, actually, that was one of the things. There were two things that struck me about the beginning. One was that they do mention three other bodies in the ice that the movies never address. In yeah. the novella, the way it's worded, it looks, it, it, I think the implication was that when they burn the ship that the bodies were damaged, but they never confirm that the bodies are destroyed. They just mm. never address it again. And I always yeah. thought like, how cool would it be to have a story about the other three bodies that are still in the ice because they're probably not dead you know um the other thing that struck me the novella is told it's a horror story don't get me yeah. wrong and the movie absolutely is a horror story but it's told in a very science fiction of the times structure which is that sort of summary that well as you know doctor this is what happened and they recount the things that the men sort of already know for the audience and that was a thing that they did in a lot of science fiction movies at the time and um science fiction books and stories at the time so i kind of rolled with it that like okay we're going to get a several page summary of things that we could be seeing rather than being told about but i also recognize that a lot of it is a style of the times mm. and i'm okay with that but it does i think frame the story as a science fiction story initially and not necessarily a horror story which i do think tends to happen more often in the middle of the action you know um the, in science fiction stories i think there's there's more of a explanation of stuff going on and campbell does a very good job of making sure you are never lost despite the fact that the really truly horrific stuff that happens in the novella he almost completely glosses over like right. all the actual death scenes are like they happen in between in that blank space in between paragraphs, which I think oh, is sort yeah. of fascinating because you know what he's implying, but it's not a visceral kind of story at all. Uh, I, I mean, at least until kind of the end, you know. Yeah, but, I noticed that, and I, I read it on Kindle, and I, I I went back a couple of times thinking, mm -hmm. is this is this Kindle edition messed up? No, <laughs> Me a couple too. of times. Well, hang on. And but I think honestly, I think the Kindle edition was a little bit messed up because there there should have been um, uh, scene breaks here and there. But yes, he, he did skip over a lot of the horror stuff. It, it it felt to me almost as if he wanted to get onto the next discussion about um, what tests we can use. You mm -hmm. know, like you say, it is very much reads like a sci-fi, like a science fiction story with yeah. horror elements in the background that that aren't really glossed over. But he, he certainly doesn't dwell on them. You know. Yeah. yeah, I mean the paranoia is absolutely there. Oh yeah, um, and and it increases as the story goes on because every time they think they're okay, they're not. But <laughs> um, but yeah, it's definitely framed, I think, as a science fiction story. So that I, I had to go back and read some of the paragraphs too to make sure I didn't miss like, oh hey, they killed this guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The other yeah. thing too that struck me, and again, this is. It doesn't bother me. It's just, it's kind of amusing to me for, for the time. Everybody in this camp is a big burly guy. Everyone in this camp is like, <laughs> like a mountain man, except for, I think, either Blair, Blair or Copper. One of Blair. them is kind of described as like this 
this little tiny guy. <laughs> but they're, that's they're not all bronzed. They're not yeah. all no, no. Bronzed. McCready is bronzed. Somebody else is described as being very steely. <laughs> and then somebody yeah. else is almost described as being like a Viking, like this blonde Viking kind of guy. Well, um, remember, Campbell eventually, and this is one of the things that gets him in trouble these days uh, for, for good reason, is, is that he was all into the Superman and he wanted to have like the psychic Superman everywhere. And that, that, yeah. that, you know, his first thing that he said to Frank Herbert after selling Dune was, Congratulations, Frank! You have a 15-year-old Superman story, and it's like that's your takeaway from Dune, you know, <laughs> like out of everything. And See, I, I mean, you think though, truthfully, I, I can get past it because in 1938 in Antarctica, it would take a certain kind of person <laughs> to be able to survive yeah. that, right. you know. And he spends the first paragraph, I think it's like the first paragraph or two paragraphs, describing how the place stinks because it's a bunch of dudes doing dude stuff <laughs> yeah you bring, no bring offense, up a great guys, point but... <laughs> because the, the the it stank like hell is where it opens and um i actually thought that was a great way to start the story because it immediately makes you think about the room right mm -hmm. it, it introduces the room and you have to think about you know like and um you know i think carpenter went to great lengths with that with having everybody be like yeah like throughout the whole thing which probably wasn't hard with rob Bodine's stuff everywhere right. and um you know that probably wasn't a hard thing to do but um yes i see what you're saying about the characters and the burliness that that's part of the and we should say i've been glossing over the fact that you know a couple of years ago it became you know we had a, a person who won the john w campbell award jeanette uh, I don't know how to pronounce her last name is NG um, and I feel terrible for not, but she, you know, started her award acceptance by saying John W. Campbell was a fucking fascist. And, you know, um, we can't gloss over the fact that the dude was super misogynist, sexist, you know, those things were, were bad. And it's no wonder that this story doesn't have a single woman in it, but it makes sense for in world. So, yeah. Um, which led to, by the way, there's, um, you know, Peter Watts did that great uh, story where he expanded mm -hmm. on this. Sam J. Miller also did a, uh, in his new collection, he's been on the podcast before, his new Beasts and, Beasts and Boys, I think is the name of his collection. But he, I saw him do a reading at Mysterious Galaxies of, he did a story about McCready um, making it back as a thing to New York and in the story McCready was gay and a part of the gay community in New York and it's about AIDS and the whole AIDS allegory of the thing it's a fantastic story by Sam J Miller and um and it's funny because it it really impacted how I watched the movie yesterday because I, I was watching totally differently with Sam J Miller's story in my head and I can't say his interpretation is terrible or wrong or whatever it, the story was a, had a big impact on me, and I just wanted to shut out that story. Well, if I can, I add something to that real quick. Sure. I mean, we we do live in a time where we're looking at a lot of these these authors who came before and their impact on the genre through a different lens because we live in a time when we're learning more about them. Um, you know, Campbell's fascism certainly, Lovecraft's racism mm -hmm. and xenophobia. Yeah, we all know about that. You know, Moss, uh pinching tushies. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you, you look at the impact 
those works had on the genre, the genre would not be what it is today without those impact. And I, I think the important thing is, like the example you just mentioned, transformative works yeah. that take that to a better place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I would let the professor, Tim, they're far more articulate and intelligent than me, but I, I like that rather than shying away from and disowning these important works, I like that that artists now are taking them and transforming them mm-hmm. for our time and building upon them for for our generation. I, I think that's what good art should do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Sam's story is amazing. And I really think people should go read it. So Tim. I absolutely agree. And I gotta tell you, every time I watch the thing now, I think of Peter Watts's things. interpretation of what the thing's intentions are. And yeah, although I mean, if we were really going to do a deep dive, we could compare between the novella and Watts and what I think the actual intention of the thing is. But that's totally nerding out. But the point is, yes, when I watch the thing, why would we <laughs> not nerd out here, Mary? <laughs> <laughs> this is a nerd out session. <laughs> no, I and I agree with Brian. I think that one of the ways to reclaim and build on the Uh, legacy of these people and in a way redress the horrible opinions that they held about certain things is to take those works and um, and own them and own them from diverse viewpoints and to evolve the genre past the limitations that these awful viewpoints put on their own work the, the, the on the author's own work yeah, and and I obviously feel like we have to. St- I'm, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't believe that the history of it was important mm-hmm. and the impact of it. And I want future generations of sci-fi readers. This the story is now almost ninety, almost a hundred years old soon, yeah. and its impact is it, it's tremendous and what it did to the genre. And if you look at like, and I think about this, that it was originally written probably in 35, 36. And we're talking about cell replication and everything that Mm -hmm. Blair's talking about in this story. Um, It's easy to forget. We look back at the thirties and it's funny. We talked about this in the Chamblo episode with CL Moore. You know, we want to clutch our pearls and imagine that people weren't fucking in 1935. uh, And then you read Chamblo and that story is about, you know, tentacle porn um written by a woman in 1933 right (laughs) and like and and look you know i i don't know where that starts when when bob block and henry cutner go on a double date with cl moore and her friend in in la and like are are, you know are they talking about these things i don't know but but the interesting i like to think they were talking about tentacle porn yes (laughs) but this story having this science it's easy to be like wow 1935 they're talking about cell replication but come on they were they were on to things then you Mm -hmm. know um and it's but it is still fascinating to see how far advanced you know um it's like reading i am legend it's almost impossible to believe is written in 1954 when you read that book Mm -hmm. and this one it's almost impossible to believe is written in the 30s through most of it it doesn't date itself i don't know if anybody else felt that but i felt like so I could very much easily see the movie in my head when I was re- re- rereading this, you know? I, I think the dialogue yeah. does a little bit. Like yeah. big burly yeah. men don't often call each other mugs anymore, but um, beyond that, you know, 
I think. Yeah. That, and I think, I, I think. But it doesn't to Sally Forth like at the Mountains of Madness. Because at the Mountains true. of Madness has a, a <laughs> Let's Sally Forth in it. That's true. <laughs> I just reread that too. So let me tell you, that one dates itself <laughs> a lot more. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, I think. I think that characterization dates it as well because um like um like Mary said it, it reads very much like a sci-fi story of the time when sometimes characterization was very secondary mm-hmm. and for me in this novella there wasn't you know there wasn't much deep characterization at all most of the characters were very interchangeable um all you knew about them was what they you know their jobs McCready mm-hmm. you probably knew a bit more about him than the other guys but I um you know, he didn't know anything about what they did and what they liked and what sort of people they were, really. Um, yeah. And that, you know, that probably dated it a little bit. But but um, conversely, like I said at the beginning, it did feel to me, and I thought it was because the film was in my head, but it did feel to me like it was something that was written mm. much more recent than the mid-30s. And I think some of the science, even at the end, when they're talking about the power of the atom, you know, it gets yeah. into anti-gravity and stuff like that, which is mm-hmm. sci-fi staple. But, um, and I love, I love the fact that they tried that in the film as well. They had um, yeah. building the the spaceship to escape Earth. That, yeah. that first time I saw that film, that blew my mind. I said, "Why? How the hell is he doing that?" But yeah, lock him in a tool shed. Yeah. <laughs> what else has he got to do? <laughs> That's right. It's the alien eighteen. Well, I mean. Um... Final Blackout by L. Ron Hubbard. And look, I know Hubbard is Hubbard, but Final Blackout is a fantastic novel if you've never read it from 1939. And it talks about atomic war and it was written before World War II. Um, and absolutely a fantastic novel before Hubbard completely lost his mind. And um, and I will stand by that novel and fear is fucking fantastic. But, but what Campbell was doing in this story, like too, I mean, like the cells of it's it he talks about it digesting the cells and studying Mm -hmm. it as it's digesting um i'm really fascinated by what mary brought up and the scene where it revealed the ice that's one of the scenes i highlighted as like one of the most powerful moments of it but it's like the lighting of the magnesium in a way that's science being Mm -hmm. part of the reveal right? right And what I think is really good about this is this is really a story where Campbell is showing a lot of nuts and bolts of suspense. And when we talk about this as a classic of science fiction, it's also a classic of suspense, not just the paranoia, but the way the reveals are written, the way um, uh, like the information is conveyed to carry the next part of the suspense and to make you think um, this the suspense aspects of the story are underrated. I think a lot of times, not, not, not really underrated because it is considered a classic of that. So I guess I should revise that thought, but you know, I think that's one of the things that's really important on it. How did everyone feel about those suspense mechanisms? Because that's a thing that maybe people who aren't writers don't catch on to, but we're all people that have had to reveal things and think about when we're revealing them. Because that, to me, is one of the things that would seem so far and ahead of its time. Brian, what do you think about that? Um, I'm sorry, you cut out there on me for a second. Oh, you're still muted, but... Um, Microsoft's still, Brian. Yeah. I'm sorry, you, you cut out on me halfway through the question, David. I'm, <laughs> no, I'm trying sorry. to figure out what well, the hell was going on. 
What do you think about the suspense mechanisms as a writer that exist in this story? Because to me, that's one of the things that's so foundational about it is how he reveals information. In this well, story. yeah, exactly. Exactly that. Um, and, you know, if you're somebody in their 20s going back and reading this now, it's, it's probably not going to impact you the same way because everybody else has done it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, it, was, it was an originator for the time. Um, if you read a lot of the, a lot of the other stories from the pulps of that time, not just sci-fi, but you know, the, the fantasy, the horror tales, um, Campbell was an originator and, and, you know, it's, it began here. Yeah. I think like Mary said, a lot of the action being off screen, as it were, Mm -hmm. um, there was one bit I remember in particular when. Uh, McCready disappears down one of the winding corridors towards the dogs. Then you hear, you hear, you know, it it says you hit. We heard bang, thunk, crash, and then screaming. And then yeah. it takes a while for your point of view character. I can't remember who it was at the time to catch up with McCready and see this melting mass on the floor, which was one of the guys that had been taken over. Again, you know, the horror off screen, as it were, but also um building the suspense through another half a page while you're waiting to discover who it was. And then when mm-hmm. you discover who it was, it was, Oh shit. I thought that guy was still human. Uh, well, it's a really, it's a really good way of um, pulling the reader through the story as opposed to it's, it's sort of presenting them with a, um, it's quite filmic in a way, presenting them with a, a scenario and then letting them catch up. Well, and you ra- you raise a great point. Something else that Campbell does in the novella he doesn't just rely on the visual sense for the reader. It, he's not just giving the reader information. Here's mm-hmm. what the character's seeing. Uh, like you just said with the sounds, or as David pointed out earlier, the smell of the room, um, yeah. you know, he, he utilizes all of the reader's senses and that, mm-hmm. that adds to the, the dread. It builds the suspense. Mm. All right. Before I've... we get to the movie, do we have anything else on the novellas? Mary, you were about to speak. So I'm sorry <laughs> to cut you off. Do you, uh, anything else about the novella? Yeah, there were two little things. Um, one, to to respond to the idea about the uh, suspense mechanisms. I think they do a lot through the character who I guess is supposed to be who Childs is in the movie. Uh, Conant, I think his name is. Mm. Um, he's like the other sort of main point of view character, I guess, or the one who comes up his point of view a lot. It's like him, Gary, and McCready. And Conant... You know, for all these big burly guys, Conant is the only one who breaks down and cries, you know, I, and I think, you know, when, and, and it's like, when Copper does the test at first and they think it works and Conant is so relieved that he's crying, like that really struck me because they are mm. described as like guys that are not easily bothered by stuff. And then to find out like when they're, when they, only, it just from Copper's expression that the test hadn't worked um it's little things like that that he does throughout that i think are are absolutely fascinating um and that really kind of carry the tension in a modern way you know um the other thing that struck me about this and i don't think it's brought up in the movie even though the movie to me strikes me as more cosmic horror than the novella is and and i don't know if this is a lovecraft influence because i don't know if campbell was influenced by lovecraft this story was written 10 years after call of cthulhu but there is a uh, they they mention in the uh, in the novella several times that these aliens seem to be able to control dreams. It's almost 
it's like they're talking in their sleep. And if you're close enough to them, you can, you're in your dreams, you pick up what they're saying. And that's how Blair knew that they were shapeshifters, that, the, that they were still alive. And um, because it's like they were, and that is very cosmic horror this idea that they're dead, but dreaming somehow, and that they're talking mm-hmm. in their sleep to people who are going to be receptive. Um, and I think it adds a certain tension there because in the same token, like conversely, then they are able to learn about the men enough to be able to imitate them beyond just the physical, that they can infiltrate your thoughts and learn how to imitate your mannerisms and your thoughts, even down to what you would say if one of the things next to you was burned, if you're a thing, what you would say if you were pretending to be a guy, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, perfectly, even down to their responses. And that, I think, increased a lot of tension because you couldn't rely on a person's behavior to determine if it was a thing, which is what they were trying to do, because the things will turn on each other just to protect themselves and to appear human long enough to do what they have to do. That to me, I thought was really kind of scary, you know, and that was a big tension thing there. To me, the most horrifying aspect of the thing, the movie, is the idea that you could be one and not know it and Mm -hmm. that it could be inside you and you could think you were human and and um, it's funny because I've watched the movie probably 40 times. I've seen it. I saw it at Lovecraft Fest on the big screen, you know, in the last couple of years. And still, I got something out of it last night that I'd never gotten before about Blair. But we'll get to that. Um, I'm not going to talk about the Howard Hawks movie because I know it is based on the story, but kind of isn't. <laughs> it's not really worth talking about, in my opinion. Um, with the limited time that we have, I want to talk about the movie. And in the 70s, was it wasn't Carpenter who initiated this project. This project was initiated by Universal Pictures, who knew that they had the rights to this. And somebody there, some smart person, um, was wanting to get the project off. Now, the first person they hired to write the script was uh, Bill Nolan, in 1978 and if you think about you know why bill nolan um logan's run was only two years in the past and uh we just recently lost bill a couple years ago um and uh bill was an extremely nice and wonderful guy um and this this book this night 2009 edition comes with his introduction and his screen treatment from the late 70s and i want to say that i like his screen treatment and he, it's a tough position when you're talking about one of the greatest science fiction horror movies of all time to say my treatment would have been better, <laughs> uh, right? In 1978, um, there's a lot of big nopes for me in this um, screen treatment, and I don't want to go into it too much. Um, but, you know, Bill, first of all, had all kinds of married couples, like McCready's wife was there, and like all the... The male characters had like families at the base, which already just changes everything. Mm -hmm. And there's some interesting things with the family stuff because it it creates a different dynamic if you're trying to protect your family from shape-shifting animals. And so there is some cool, really cool stuff with that. But they, in this treatment, they discover the crashed alien ship themselves. There's no Swedes, none of that. 
And the big twist and reveal in Bill's script is that their base is on top of the alien spacecraft, uh, the crashed alien spacecraft that the thing had like wandered out. And when they found him in the ice, it was because it froze like wandering out and that underneath them, he's trying to wake up their ship and the ship's going to basically lift up, which is kind of a cool reveal. But it's not what we got. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I, I have to interrupt when when Dave said Swedes a moment ago, Tim Mary, did you also resist the urge it's to Norwegians say they're Norwegians? <laughs> that was intentional. <laughs> I was kind of hoping you would... Oh my God, totally. <laughs> I I set you guys up, but I... <laughs> all right. Anyways, so you know, there's that's the, the Nolan treatment. I don't want to talk about it a ton, but I do think it's kind of a neat reveal that the ship's underneath there, but it's not the same movie. It's not better. Um, I'm I'm kind of glad we didn't get it. I'm also glad I was able to read it in, in this book and kind of see what Bill was thinking. And I know he was trying to come up with a different twist, but, um, and there are certain ways he felt that test is there and there are certain things that are still there from the story. So um and it was very hard to read it without like doing Bill's voice because there's like times where it says the total effect is mind numbing. You know? <laughs> and uh, it's just, that was really hard not to do. But anyway, that's, so that's a good Nolan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, trust me. <laughs> I've had him tell me why he didn't like the shining probably 400 times. So I have that like, <laughs> synced into my brain anyways um the uh the thing the movie now brian you saw it opening day in the theater uh, not opening day but opening weekend opening weekend and that's really cool so we got your experience on that mary when did you first experience the thing uh i mean i was probably a teenager um i was a huge john carpenter fan huge john Car and and the first John Carpenter movie I saw probably was Halloween and I, it was probably my dad he said well if you like John Carpenter you should watch The Thing it's one of his classics and I said oh okay <laughs> and I just absolutely fell in love I've always been uh, a, a fan of like shapeshifters and aliens and things like and this is like all the sweet spots for me you know and it was a, a genuinely scary movie one of the things I think that would not have worked as the family element because you've got a bunch of men who trust each other almost to the point where like they've been living together so long they get they get under each other's feet you know they get in in each other's way but they all trust each other and this completely breaks down their trust it's it's perfectly done in my opinion it it, it I mean, in, in the novella, there's like 32 men or something that you that, that which would be an impossible cast, I think, for a movie like this that's supposed to be so insular and and almost claustrophobic in a way. So I think that was a, a good. I think they made a lot of good changes with this movie. But yeah, my first my first time seeing it, I was probably I was probably about a teenager and I was just blown away. I think I went and saw everything the man did after that. Yeah. Uh, I was already a Carpenter fan. 
I saw it after right after seeing Big Trouble in Little China in the theater. So that was mm-hmm. kind of a big, whoa, this guy's got range. <laughs> you know, Tim, what was your first experience? Um, I think mid-teens, like Mary, and I think probably, I think I probably saw it after Big Trouble as well. And uh, not only has Carpenter got range, but Kurt Russell has as well. Yeah. <laughs> like, whoa. Um, yeah, I... I honestly, I have no firm memories of my first viewing of it, but I do know I've watched it probably 30 or 40 times since. Mm-hmm. And um, one of my favorite memories of it is introducing it to my kids. My daughter's 23 now, my son's 19. And when they were in their sort of mid teens, it was like, time to show you the thing. You oh, know, yes. <laughs> time to show you Indian. And uh, uh, I just love those moments. Mary uh, and I did that actually, last year with. Uh with my youngest son who's, oh, cool. who's now 14 he, yeah his first carpenter was they live and he loved it and yeah fantastic. and then then it was escape from new york and okay now you're ready for the thing and yeah. he was blown away yeah for my daughter it was in the mouth of madness because that is one of my favorite movies of all time that and the thing are probably in my top five and so of course as soon as she was old enough we show them to her you got to the things in my top five you know and i show them the thing and then um uh, the haunting uh mm-hmm. not, not the remake of obviously and uh you know aliens aliens being Alien. my favorite mm-hmm. of all time probably on a par with the thing i definitely think the thing is carpenter's best my personal favorite like like mary's is in the mouth of madness mine is prince of darkness i'm a complete devotee <laughs> to prince of darkness I actually got to see it screened in the church where it was filmed in Chinatown oh, awesome. in LA. Oh, cool. Was Alice Cooper with you? Oh, yeah. that was amazing. I, <laughs> I, have, I have pictures. It was amazing. Yeah, I'll tell you what was actually even cooler was walking the alley in the back yeah. where they had the scene where they jumped out the window. Mm-hmm. was just like, I, I just almost had a heart attack walking in that alley. <laughs> but, um, but for the thing, I'll tell you last night, one of the different one of the things, just watching it last night, I spent a lot of time thinking about when did Blair become a thing, right? Like, when did that happen? And because to me, and I had an experience a couple of years ago, I watched it Lovecraft Fest. I was sitting with Jeremy Robert Johnson and we both were the only people in the theater who laughed when he said, I'm ready to come in now. Mm-hmm. And it was really weird because like <laughs> we both cracked up at that. Nobody else in the, the big vast theater at the Lovecraft Fest laughed at that. But now that I'm thinking about it, like, he's totally a thing at that point right yeah. like yeah he's got his noose but the thing got to him and that's him saying okay i'm ready to come in now he's clearly not human anymore yeah. right? there's there's a blog i wish i could remember the name of it um you can find it if you do like a google search and it goes through the movie and calculates at which point each character <laughs> would have like that, that the thing would have had an opportunity to turn each character in the movie who is who is assimilated, um, including Blair. And they yeah. say it's it, and, and I, I you know it's been a while since I read it, but I believe they said that Blair was um, it was like maybe like a day or two before they actually go to to check on him. That or no, I'm sorry, it was. A day or two after they put him in there i guess because he's they, they think it was yeah. like right right off the bat that he's been pretending to be a thing for a long time well they say at one point before they go out there they say the storm's been hitting us hard for two days so mm-hmm. 
there's a big time jump in there that a lot of people don't notice mm-hmm. um, that the storm has been going for two days. So. And the novella points out that the, the movie doesn't, I don't think, but the novella points out that the thing can turn into almost like a plasma. That's how it initially kind of, I guess, works its way into your flesh and assimilates you. So that Blair technically could have gotten out anytime he wanted to. That him being locked up didn't really matter all that much because he could have come and gone as he wanted to. He just had to change shape. So yeah. my, my thing in the film was always that, you know, the, the theory that's expounded in the novella as well, any one molecule of the thing becomes yes. an independent thing with its own will to survive. So my thought in the film is that you, you get infected by breathing in a molecule of whatever, you know, mm-hmm. a molecule of the, um, the dog creature or, you know, mm-hmm. so it, you don't need physical contact as such. So, and the, the thing about that is from the beginning, they're all doomed really. So yeah. Mary, this blog have a theory about the end. Cause I, I spoken to my LA manager about my idea for the things, you know, why did they make the thing sequel in the Norwegian camp? It's just, it's almost pointless. You, you get to know yeah. why the act is in the wall and who the dude is who slit his wrist and stuff. But my, my idea for the things, and I'll put it out there, copyright, is <laughs> it's, set, it's modern day. So it's set in 2022 and a ship goes to Antarctica to pull out the last of the people before the Antarctic winter. And then there's a shape stumbling through the storm. And it's a CGI Kurt Russell as he was back in 82, you know? Right. And he's obviously, uh, who are you? Oh, my name's my name's McCready. Oh, where do you come from? Oh, I was just on some base. You know, they don't know he's been there for four years. And, and they take him on the ship to save him and they're sailing to South America. And then shit starts happening on the ship. And you get two groups of people, the one who want to save themselves and the one who realize they can't save themselves because if they do, humanity's fucked. That's it's fucking brilliant. Really, they yeah. should make it. Well, they just need to make that. it. They will say that <laughs> they're... believe that... Frank Darabont was going to do a sequel in the early 2000s with Ron Moore from Battlestar Galactica and Deep Space Nine fame. Right. And if you've read the treatments, it's it's not exactly what you're talking about, Tim, but it's 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 about the thing getting back to civilization through their frozen bodies. And um, I I read the screenplays and they are awesome. If they had made it, it would have been, it would have won people over. It was a two night thing. So it was like basically two movies. Yeah. So there was one about the transportation of the thing back. Mm -hmm. And then the second part was what if it got to the mainland kind of thing. And I I think the canon, if I'm not mistaken, is that McCready's infected. Um, because of the comic books that came after that? The comic books aren't canon, though. Oh, the that... ca- okay, okay. Well, then, according to this blog, though, and to me, this blog makes more sense, its theory about the end is that between the two of them, the only one who was al- alone long enough to have become assimilated is Childs. That MacReady's actually okay, but mm. Childs isn't. And... I kind of like that. I mean, because there's a point where Childs, I guess, goes out into the snow because he see, he thinks he sees Blair, right? Yeah, and right. so he's, he's going to investigate it. And then he comes, but that for that period of time, nobody knows where he is or what's happening. Right, he survives, he comes back, yeah. But McCready is never alone in the movie, except for the point when he's out in the snow, which is before the test. He's never alone after that point for, I think, less than like 10 seconds um 
or, or he's never alone for longer than 10 seconds if, mm. from that point on, from the point where he does the test to prove he's human. And so the blog was saying the only of the two of them, the only one who would have had an opportunity to have become assimilated would have been Childs. And I was like, you know what? I can roll with that. Yeah, I think McCready could have gotten could have been gotten got at any point too. But yeah, um, Universal called Tim Levin. We're 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 backing his project. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Let's yeah. cut the let's cut the yes. last point, but it's from the show, and we'll write it together. I, yeah. You know, I, I have spoken to my manager about it, and he he just says the the rights are so tangled up. The, I, I was curious about that. Who does own the rights to all of that? Because well, it's like curious I said, because I would love Frozen to do Universal, I think it's Universal. Universal. Yeah, and there's talk of a Frozen Hell movie because technically they're not the same rights, and um, which is which is one of those interesting little legal dynamics. But um, but yeah, so anybody else have? Because I know we're running out of time here, um, and I want to. Does anybody else have any other thing that they want to say about the movie? Mary uh, Mary brought it up. It, it's tangential, but the the Dark Horse comic books they they are a good read. Um, if if folks haven't read them, uh, read them. No. you know, it, it, it's too, too many series. So I think it's 12 issues total, but you know, a SEAL team shows up, they rescue Childs and McCready. Childs is infected. Um, oh, Childs is infected. Yeah. And oh, then okay. in the second series, McCready's infected and he takes it to South America. I can't remember why it's been years since I read it, but uh, you know, then the, then the thing is loose in the jungles of South America. And I still like Tim's idea better um yeah but you know they're 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 a good read uh i can't i can't remember if they're currently in print or not but i know they've been collected so there's things the, would work if if childs and mccready if childs is infected and mccready wasn't by the time any plane comes to get them mccready would most certainly yeah that would work i'm, I'm all tim, for it tim, <laughs> and tim if peter watts was able to publish thing fan fiction you can too <laughs> That's you know, what I, I, I've thought of, yeah, I've thought of pitching it as a novel and whatever, but it's just you know who, yeah, it's yeah. Well, so I'll tell you, I'll tell there. you though, um, it is it's a story that can have all these tentacles where people are are theorizing about it, and it, that's one of the cool things about it. It is. It's almost. I was going to say the ending. I love the ending of the thing. A lot mm -hmm. of people. It's sort of, and I hate to bring this up, Brian. It's a bit of a rising ending, isn't it? Really? Oh, it is. <laughs> it's like it totally well, is. Fucking and that's the best ending happened. of all. <laughs> I love it. I love endings like that. I loved the rising ending when I read it. I was one mm -hmm. of the people that loved it because it, it's perfect. I don't really want to yeah. know what happens to these people. I know. You were one of six. I know yes. you find well, that. I, <laughs> that. I think that's that's one of the true horrors of it is you don't, you don't know how it ends. You, yeah. Another interesting thing about this blog, and then I'll stop talking about it, is that um, they did calculate <laughs> that if, if the thing based on how quickly the thing assimilated as many people as it did in the camp if it ever got to the mainland they said and based on on blair's data on the computer uh that it would take approximately <laughs> three to six months to assimilate the entire human race if it ever mm. got to the like to the mainland my, my god that Not is me. terrifying yeah it wouldn't get me <laughs> 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 well um yeah, and that's one of the amazing things about this story is you can can theorize about all those things. So, um, all right, to sum it up, um, uh, your experience, the last thing, your experience rereading this overall and your 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 main takeaway, Mary. 
I, it, 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 it's really kind of inspiring. I mean, to, to reread the source material, I think uh, it, it just, it, it's, it's one of those things that it, it makes me, it reminds me why I started writing horror in the first place, particularly cosmic horror. And it, it just sort of, I guess, it got me excited to, to, to keep writing it, I think. Yeah, I think it's cool where you can look at all the different versions of things when you see adaptations, where you can mm-hmm. see where writers go this way and writers go that way. And to, to see a, a masterpiece story get a film by a master, a, a master filmmaker, like doing it different, it's cool. And I wonder if Nolan's screen treatment had any of the inspiration for them, for Blair building the ship underneath, like the, I, you know, I'm sure Bill, mm-hmm. Bill got paid, by the way, everyone, Bill got paid. So, um, Tim, what was your uh, thoughts on um, on uh, rereading this? It's just, so the first time I read it, it was way back in my early years as a writer. So I think now, I think reading it this time, it was really interesting to see the difference between that and the screen version and to try and, you know, the, the, the trouble is reading it because it's one of my favorite films. I was always running the film in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it's fascinating to see the differences and you know I'm as we all you know I'm trying to write screenplays and things like that as well so it it, it I, I try not to treat it as a lesson <laughs> but how difficult is it reading something not as a writer and I found um thankfully I was reading this not as a writer I was reading it as a fan because it was just really good entertaining novella um and that's, I think, for me, reading something nowadays, that's a sign of a good story. If I can read it and be entertained and not try and big holes in it, because I'm a writer as well, that yeah. just shows it's working and flowing well. I'm going to frame this question a little differently for Keen. I'm going to frame this as, what do you think the young writers of today should be looking for when they read this work of golden age science fiction and horror? Oh, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, we've covered some of it already in our in our conversation. Look sure. at look at how he starts the story. Uh, look at what he does with all the senses and the information that he's providing the reader, and how he's providing that information. Um, you and and I would say that about any seminal work. You know, I I, I just did a an interview a couple of weeks ago about Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door. And, uh, you know, the interviewer, uh, she's in her, I guess, her late 20s, early 30s. And, you know, she didn't, it wasn't as impactful on her as it was on, say, Tim or Mary or myself. And I'm like, well, yeah, because, you know, our generation's completely ripped off every trick he pulled in The Girl Next Door. It's the the same with who goes there. Um, You know, this is, this is one of the OGs. I know in, in my reread, um, I, I didn't realize just how impactful this was on me until rereading it in preparation for this podcast. I, I stole a lot from Campbell that I, I didn't realize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny when you see that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and for me, the history, I, I'm always going to want people to look to the history and to see what, but, but just, thinking about years before world war ii this story went around the country on pulp racks and in the science fiction magazine of the era and everyone was was reading this and what 
how powerful it was to think about like, because back then it's like when we only had three TV networks, everyone's watching Buck Rogers, even though it's BD, BD, BD and all that, you know, you're watching it because you only got a couple channels, right? And here everybody's reading this and it has such a powerful impact. And that's why today, and that's why I think the story hung around in Universal, you know, brought Carpenter in to do this. So, all right, everybody, I know you guys got hard outs. So we're going to wrap this up. But uh, who goes there is um, if somebody decided to, to use this episode as cliff notes, that was a mistake. You should have read it. Um, <laughs> you know, we've obviously tried to sell you on that. Uh, the next episode of this podcast is at the mountains of madness. I know I could have had Mary on that one too. Um, <laughs> but uh, my Lovecraft expert is Cody Goodfellow. He's pretty good too. Um, and uh <laughs> Uh, but we're going to um, talk about At the Mountains of Madness next, which was written in 1931, which, you know, was even further back. But and then that is closing up our 1930s series. Um, but definitely everybody, if you only came for Who Goes There, go back and watch the other episodes, especially I think you'll enjoy Shamblo by Catherine Lucille Moore, um, which was, you know, Medusa and tentacle porn and all that stuff in 1933. Uh, Mary, <laughs> Tim, Brian, any last words? Thanks for having us. This was fun. Thanks for having us, Dave. It's good to see you guys again. You too, brother. And, and good to very see soon. you too. If, if, if I may, uh, we're, Mary and I are looking forward to seeing Tim in person next year, uh, last weekend of March, first weekend of April at scares the care author con too it's a uh, uh for the charity that i'm involved with and both mary and tim will be guests um folks can find out more at scaresthecare.org yeah uh great charity and great event i wish i wasn't on the other side of the country from author con. <laughs> hey i'm on the other side of the atlantic you can yeah i know i know Touché. <laughs> Touché. i should be going i should be going at some point I'm starting paddling everyone in January. tells me it's the best convention and you know i've heard and by then i should be well no i won't have last night to kill nazis out by then but soon so right. uh <laughs> but anyways uh thank you everybody for joining me and um we'll be in touch i'm sure i'll have everybody back for their own books uh, in the future Ooh. so uh, and look out for their books and keen i'm so stoked on that lost level uh you all right know, man. my favorite thing that you do so um, we'll be in touch again. Thanks for joining Postcards from a Dying World. Peace. Good guys. Bye.